This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode 90. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, and technology sides of change. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Kyler. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here. And you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms that you might be listening to podcasts on. So be sure to subscribe to us there if you haven't already. We've got an exciting show for you today. We have a few hot topics that we'll cover here, starting with how patriotism built Palantir. So if you're not familiar with Palantir, or even if you are, that's an interesting story about how how the company was built and, and some of its patriotic uh, actions to, to get some traction in the marketplace. We'll also talk about the death of meetings. We'll talk about the last mile uh, delivery. We'll talk about last mile delivery tech, uh, more specifically uh, the build versus buy decision that needs to be considered as part of that decision. And then finally, during the hot topics section or segment, we'll talk about AI and mic microcontrollers as well. So if you're interested in artificial intelligence, that'll be a good one you want to uh, hear and discuss with us. And then uh, later in the show, uh, after our hot topics, we're going to have, we're actually going to replay a clip of an interview that we did about a year ago. Uh, with the CEO of Odoo Software, which is a, an open source ERP platform. Um, I was just at their Odoo experience, their their annual conference in Brussels, Belgium uh, last week. And so we thought uh, we'd replay you this clip. And uh, we actually have a, a more recent interview that we filmed while in Brussels, uh, which will be available on our YouTube channels shortly. But in the meantime, we thought we'd play you this clip that we recorded a while back with uh, Fabian, who's the CEO of Odoo and uh, talk a little bit about open source and just general technology trends. And uh, after that segment, we're also going to, Kyler and I will talk a little bit about the conference as well. Uh, some of the lessons and learnings, takeaways from the Odoo Experience Conference um, in Brussels last week. And then finally, last but not least, the third segment today, we'll have Clifford Martin, who is the uh, lead of our third stage consulting Africa office, or actually the EMEA office, which is uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa, but he's, he's based in Africa. And he's going to be in this clip we play for you. He's going to be talking about the role of exec the role of executives in digital transformation failures. So it's a it's a great keynote presentation that he gave recently for one of our digital stratosphere online events. So uh, be sure to stick around for that as well. So before we get to our guests, though, in these these additional clips we're going to play and discuss with you, Kyler, what were some of these hot topics you had in mind? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start with um, the evolution of meetings. And this research comes from having some data around 
what a hybrid work environment looks like and how to best maximize the efficiencies of in-office time. So definitely kind of a newer study. And um, what they kind of base it off of is actually Amazon, um, Jeff Bezos, who obviously is the CEO and founder of, of Amazon. And then also they do a profile of Slack, which is a, a software that allows you to, um, it's an employee engagement and communication software if you haven't heard of it before, but it's an opportunity to work with people in real time, similar to Microsoft Teams and those other type of systems, um, but has kind of some really proficient uh, and sophisticated fun functionalities. So they have this, um, this idea of asynchronous work and basically what that means is there should not be any meetings. And really, if you need to communicate with your team, you should record yourself and send it to them so that each person in that meeting can pull out what they they actually need as far as information. The Amazon concept is interesting because they actually require each meeting attendee to read a six-page memo before... Um, going into the meeting, and they don't allow any PowerPoint presentations. Uh, so basically, what this looks like is is when you're in the office, there's no meetings because you need to be doing whatever you need to do as far as in-office only functions. And when you work at home, you can have meetings, but only if they are kept to a certain time point, less than 10 minutes. So it's definitely an interesting way to kind of um, maximize efficiencies. And they have some preliminary data that it, it does actually work. So um, I wanted to get your feedback on the technology and just your expertise in organizational design, human behavior, about what your thoughts or feedback were would be to a, an organization that was considering this uh, method of asynchronous work. Yeah, well, you uh, sort of lost me uh, as a consultant. You lost me when you said no PowerPoint, uh, because as, as a consultant, I feel naked if I go into a meeting without PowerPoint. I, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Uh, so that sounds sounds like blasphemy to me, but I understand how it could work for for some organizations. Um, I think it's you know it's good it's good for scale. You know, if you want to reach a lot of people and have large meetings without actually having the meetings. Um, so I think the technology is definitely there and it's evolved and come such a long way. And, and we've learned during you know since the pandemic of 2020. We've learned how to have more effective and productive meetings or non-meetings, if you will, using technology. But I guess uh, the question I have is, you know, is in any of the research you saw or in this article you're referring to, was there a reference to like, how do you, how do you not lose that human interaction like Q&A and like, you know, stuff you miss out on, you might miss out on by having that real time live discussion or, or meeting, if you will, even though that's a bad word in this context. Yeah, it, it didn't. And I think that's one thing that to me, this is one of those kind of buzz methods, buzzword methods that sounds really good on paper, but it really isn't going to work for all organizations. So if that is how you operate as an organization, super cool. Would that work for us at third stage? No, it just wouldn't because we're all consultants and we need that dialogue. And that's how we uh, mine really great ideas and strategies is by working together as a team without those constraints. So I, I don't know that I would really subscribe to that um, that idea, but I think that there is tactics you can kind of pull out of that, like the meeting recordings, being able to have that um, that information in different delivery methods is not a bad thing. I just, it sounds like a lot of guardrails, but of course, as a corporate dropout, like everyone tells me all the time, I'm not good at those 
those types of weird boundaries. I, I find them obtrusive at times. Um, yeah. It sounds like if you just let everyone do their job, they might be able to do it well if you trust yeah. them. <laughs> but yeah. again, that's my unpopular opinion. It could just be that these are just additional arrows in the quiver, you know, that you could use and may, it, mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't completely Absolutely. replace meetings, but maybe you just have less meetings or more productive ways to augment those meetings. Um, and, and I guess if I think about a digital transformation and going through changes and all the communication and change management that needs to happen as a result, um, it could be a great way to increase their frequency and the touch points with people without having to kill them with meetings, but it can't replace, I don't think it could fully replace meetings uh, altogether. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense as long as it, you know, matches the success and objectives of the organization, as we kind of always preach, you have to have a unique process for your unique identity. So um, speaking of unique identities, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how patriotism here in the United States built Palantir, which is, um, you know, a, a data-driven software um, that does things like data mining and really focuses a lot in healthcare too. Uh, and I know you did a recent video on what is Palantir. So if you haven't seen that, head over to Eric's YouTube channel um, that you can find that this video goes out on and our podcast as well. We always link to that. So just a little pre-work there. But the interesting concept of this patriotic political stance that almost built Palantir is they really focused the start of their work in um, the government, in the United States government here. And it's look, it works for the FBI, the NSA, the CIA. So uh, all of those different um, government entities. Uh, and they also have had a lot of kind of backlash around their work for specific agencies, infamously ICE, which is the Immigrant and Customs Enforcement Agency here, which has been known for a lot of scrutiny just on the political side of our immigration policies here in the U.S. Um, and that actually, a lot of their, uh, that sparked internal protests and the line between protecting civil liberties and facilitating their governmental duty. So an interesting position for an organization to be in. But they've also gone in to win hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts each year and now is employed by the world's biggest geopolitical players um, around the globe. So obviously, they've seen a lot of success in that approach. So I wanted to share kind of that opinion piece around Palantir and their interesting way into the software vendor marketplace and kind of see if you might add some color around that experience that has obviously worked for them, but not without scrutiny. Yeah, it sounds like it's gotten them some early momentum and, and attention, uh, but as they diversify their client base and certainly as they move outside of government and in into the private sector and into um, other cultures and, and parts of the world, which, you know, they are becoming a, a global company. Um, you know, I think that's, that's where, you know, they might have to um, not soften the message, but, you know, it, it might just have to be a little bit more neutral, I guess you'd say um, in that way. But I know he's, you know, the CEO of Palantir recently had a bunch of press over um, meeting with Zelensky uh, in Ukraine. And, and so, you know, clearly that's a, you know, the political uh, patriotic side of things, it seems to be, you know, sort of a still uh, undercurrent that's still part of their their culture and their business. Um, but it's a good point, you know, it, and I think it's a it raises a more general, broader question around how corporate leaders can navigate, you know, a fairly 
at least in the U.S. and certain in certain parts of the world right now, it's a it's a pretty tense, you know, socially and politically, it's pretty tense. I would say at least more than any time I've seen them in my lifetime. Um, so I think it's it's hard to navigate as a leader right now. And so I think that's sort of what you're hitting on is an even bigger point, which is how you how you navigate, you know, cancel culture and and um, hurt feelings and um, you know the disagreements that come in with politics and, and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I don't have I don't have good answers for that though. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of the new role of the evolving CEO because now more moral type strategies, we, we see that in things like sustainable technology and things like that, that really haven't been on the core business conversation. So it seems though they've kind of leveraged that political side of their own brand to win additional contracts or to become kind of a voice in that, which is an interesting route that most CEOs, I would have to assume, wouldn't take because it does create boundaries to the business growth. So mm-hmm. it's a, definitely an interesting profile. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, you know, I'd be curious to see how they evolve, you know, because what got them to the point they're at now may not be the same strategy or the same tactics that help them continue their global growth. So it'd be curious to see how or if they pivot off, you know, the current strategy. Absolutely. Definitely. But something to kind of a a interesting business to watch if you're in the digital transformation space. Um, So we'll continue to keep an eye on that. And switching gears a little bit, um, still on evolution, but more on the hardware side, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, artificial intelligence and microcontrollers. So for those of you that don't know what a microcontroller is, because I didn't, as most things, when I start to research our hot topics for the week, uh, a microcontroller is a miniature computer that can run on simple commands and is kind of the basis or the core catalyst for many connectivity pieces, like the Internet of Things, their sensors in automobiles, those types of things. So that is something that you can put on a, a tiny, you can use a microcontroller to put on uh, you know, a bigger piece of hardware. And I'll give you an example of how that manifests. But the challenge with microcontrollers is they really have very limited memory and no core operating system. So artificial intelligent models that are, or machine learning models that are evolving um, really have to work independent from those central computing resources. And that breakage can cause issues in the AI code and the evolution of, of being able to be autonomous or use autonomous systems. So what they've done um, at MIT here in the United States, uh, they've developed a new technique that allows the on-device training to have a bigger memory. Uh, So for those of you that actually know memory measurements, it can use 500 megabytes of memory um, that greatly exceeded the status quo of the 260 kilobyte capacity for most microcontrollers. So an example of this in layman's terms, right, um, for those business technologists like myself, is you could put one of these devices on your keyboard of your computer, and it would then learn how the user types or their communication. Think of autocorrect, but on steroids. Uh, and then create more efficiencies in typing for them, as opposed to someone sitting here and typing emails all day long. So cost savings and, and um, more efficiencies is a, a good case study of, of how microcontrollers work. So I wanted to, um, you know, obviously bring this new cutting edge tech to the conversation that you and I have, Eric, but also 
kind of get your feedback on using these in a business environment and any risks or benefits you might see associated with this new hardware development? Well, I think given the evolution of Internet of Things and AI, you know, I think it's a pretty powerful combination now to add you know, more memory to these, to these microcontrollers. So it makes a lot of sense. I guess I'm, do you know, technically, is it, is the purpose of adding more memory to the microcontrollers so that more AI can be done at the local, like at the local microcontroller level versus having to go to some central database to be processed or, or is it a processing thing or what, what, what's the need for yes. more memory? Um, yeah. So ex example here, we take our keyboard and right now as the status quo, you'd have to take it to a data center, a big supercomputer um, and actually utilize and plug in so that AI can be pulled out from it. So it's not able to evolve as an autonomous system right now. It needs another kind of more horsepower, if you will, to be able to do that which is very costly, as you and Brad Feeks kind of talked about the need for data centers and the privacy issues around those, because they all have to be sent to a central server. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I wasn't aware of that, um, but it sounds like a, a natural evolution and a pretty fairly groundbreaking evolution to that could really increase the adoption and the use cases for AI. And even the keyboard example is a great one, but you think about a business and all the different data points that could be collected or maybe are already being collected throughout an organization, but yet they haven't figured out how to, what to do with that data and how to process it, how to use AI. Now this just gives you more opportunity to potentially find more use cases to use AI. Absolutely. Um, I think it's, for me, I'm ready to not type any more emails. I don't know if if all those 80s babies out there, or even 70s, have PTSD from typing speed. Um, in their computer classes at school. I don't know if you ever experienced that, but like the stopwatch and you have to type as fast as you possibly can and not miss a bunch of words. I was never good at that. I didn't have kind of the technical brain to to figure out how to do that really fast. So that's what it kind of triggered for me <laughs> when right. I was reading that research. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You, you just had flashbacks of a bad memory. But it doesn't have to be that I way. Did. You could have a different. You could find a different thing that's exactly. less of a trigger for you than than typing. Okay. Yeah, I'm open to that healing through these microcontrollers. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Um, well, my last piece here is something that I found really interesting as a trend in conversation in the industry when we we talk about last mile. Um, tech. And basically, last mile, if for those of you that don't know, is a process that involves delivering a package from the nearest shipping hub to the final destination effectively and as quickly as possible. So those transports are FedEx, UPS, um, the United States Postal Service here. Um, they're not a private company like Amazon. Um, and and so a lot of companies that utilize that infrastructure globally need to have some last mile tech to help them optimize and create visibility into how to get their products from shipping centers to their actual customers. So that's kind of been a niche technology. So this overall research showcases when you should buy last delivery technology versus when you should build it. So I wanted to kind of read what they found as key data points versus those two strategies and get your reaction to them. So you should buy last mile delivery technology when you lack the technical or analytical expertise internally um, or need to build or maintain a complex technical infrastructure. 
Also, if you're on a tight budget and you need a cost-effective tool that can quickly deploy or um, measure the time of cost of building and that outweighs that operational gains that you'd need to bring in-house. Um, and then also the last one on you should buy, um, you can find solutions for your specific custom configurations. So if you are, say, a HelloFresh company and you need to get food and beverage to your customers on time on a specific schedule. Obviously, food is very delicate, has a low shelf life when it comes to storage. So it would allow you to customize those configurations and understand what that means. You should build last mile delivery technology when you do have internal technical and analytical expertise, when you have a less urgency to implement a solution um, and have time to test and debug if you can't find a solution that meets your unique requirements or competitive advantage, and also you must have a robust IT team and strategy to maintain your systems and security over time. So those are the two pieces. And since you're an expert in software selection and, um, and understand what it needs to have specifically a specialized technology like last mile operations, wanted to get your feedback or kind of reaction to those research points of when you should buy versus when you should build. Well, I, I think everything you just said, I was thinking that as you were talking through that, through your list there of the build versus buy considerations, that that applies to any, really any software decision. Yeah. I mean, you could use those same criteria, whether it's last mile delivery or anything else. But I think what you're bringing up is a really important, you know, maybe the, the point worth noting is that there's a mindset oftentimes in the industry that, that building is bad. You, you shouldn't build there. You shouldn't do custom development because um, there's off the shelf software out there and you should just buy from one of the big vendors that already provide capabilities there. Um, that could be true in some cases, but I think it's important for organizations to really keep an open mind and really, you know, critically think through those trade-offs that you just talked about because the industry, you know, the software industry is really good. And I'd say the software industry is much better than the custom development software industry. The, the off-the-shelf software vendors are much better at messaging around off-the-shelf software strengths, you know, the, the R&D they invest in, the capabilities they build, the best practices, all that stuff. They, they're really good at that marketing spin, and they built a whole ecosystem that is meant to squash any consideration of non-off-the-shelf software to, where, to the point where some CIOs and some decision makers think that, well, custom development's bad. We should buy why recreate the wheel? We could just buy software off the shelf. And in some cases, obviously it is going to be the case, but there might be some cases where you need, you want to build instead of buy. And I think that's okay. And I think just understanding and working through those criteria you talk about is really the important part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, interesting piece of, of technology when it comes to that last, that last mile delivery need, because it is such a need. Um, but I think it also brings up that it, even though it's a piece of your supply chain, it's a piece of your operations, it still needs to be heavily evaluated, just like any other ERP system, to your point. And you need those kind of cost benefits analysis to be able to make the best choice. It, even if it is a smaller piece, it's critical that it interacts with your other core systems or that you build something that might be a better competency for you to manage and have that control over. So um, that's really good insight. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And I think that's, uh, you know, a good segue into our first guest in, in, uh, our guest uh, is going to be Fabian from, who's the CEO of Odoo. 
which is sort of like a hybrid of what you were just talking about. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Odoo is sort of a, it's an open source software. So it's sort of like, uh, it is off the shelf, but there's a more configurable uh, open source component of it that in more modular uh, component of the software that is sort of a, a mix between the two. So uh, it's a good segue, I suppose, from your uh, build versus buy into talking about an open source system like Odoo. But about a year ago on this podcast, um, before it had the audience we have now, uh, we had Odoo, uh, Odoo's CEO on the show, um, great interview discussion with him. And we're actually going to play you that clip from from uh, last year. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll play you that interview with Fabian, who's the CEO of Odoo, which is an open source ERP software provider. So we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 90. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms all over the internet. Um, you can also uh, follow us on social media as well. So be sure to, to follow Third Stage and myself uh, individually on whatever social media platforms you're, you're part of. So our next guest is going to be uh, Fabian, who's the CEO of Odoo. We're going to play you a clip uh, from an interview we had about a year ago. Uh, the reason we're playing you this clip is last week I had the uh, good fortune of going to Brussels to their uh, Odoo Experience Conference, uh, which is their annual user conference and where they announce a bunch of new stuff, new pricing, new functions, all that good stuff uh, over the course of a, of a few days. Um, so we'll play you this uh, interview clip and we'll come back and discuss it. But let's roll the clip here with Fabian, who's the CEO of Odoo. I guess to start, um, just to get the conversation started, so maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, one, the first comment I had when we got on the live stream today was that you look very young, and I know Odoo's been around for a while now, so I figured you must have been in high school or junior high or something when uh, when you when you started the company, but <laughs> but maybe tell us a little bit about um, your background and how, how and why you started Odoo. Yeah, I started very young, you're right. <laughs> So I started at the university and uh, I did a lot of things and this one worked better than the others. Um, so I basically all, always worked for my own company. Okay, great. And, and why, why, did you, um, why did you start Odoo? And then I'm going to ask you questions about what Odoo is, but what, what was it that inspired you to start the company? What, what problems um, were you trying to solve? I'm passionate about development and uh, management. And that was a way for me to bring my two patients uh, together. Uh, but mostly what I noticed is that uh, SMEs at the time, and it's still the case today, are totally uh, inefficient. 
you have a lot of people spending time on, on administrative tasks, recording data, doing spreadsheet to compute reports. And people are totally inefficient and they really suffer from that. Uh, I mean, depression at work has never been so high. The, you can see a lot of complaints about the traditional ERPs. So I wanted to fix that. And I always wanted to fix like a big problem, like the kind of problems where you need decades to fix. And so Odoo was the perfect uh, things to do for me there. Gotcha. Okay, great. I well, that... Maybe you should uh, reconnect me. Oh, sure. One second here. All right, do you okay. hear me okay? I still... I don't hear nor see you. That's okay, strange. what I'll do... That is strange. Hello, hello. So, um, I guess just to start, I mean, we lost it. Okay, so maybe if you can type the question and I will answer. <laughs> sure. Yeah, how about now? Do you hear me now? Test, test. Let me switch to another yeah. network, maybe. Okay. Well, we're going to uh, improvise here. I'm going to type the questions to um, to Fabian, and I'll obviously verbalize them to the audience here. Um, mm. So the, the first uh, question is... is uh, I believe we have issues with the internet of Eric or me. I don't know. So I, I guess to start, I'll, I'll uh, type him the question here. What what exactly is open source uh, software? Mm. We'll start there. Okay. So Eric is asking me a question. I hope uh, people hear me. But uh, his question is, what is uh, open source software? And basically, open source means that it's a software that you can download, that you can modify, that you can change uh, for free. And it's guaranteed that it's free uh, from the license. Um, so basically, it's come from the idea that knowledge, knowledge should be shared, that we shouldn't uh, create a lock, lock or uh, lock in or customers or uh, on the software. So it's basically free and guaranteed by the license, free to use, free to modify, free to distribute. And uh, but uh, having said that, it's you don't, the, the service is not free. So from from the rest, uh, the, the service is like traditional software. Uh, so what differs from the traditional ERP is actually not that much. It's just uh, another license. Um, and for the rest of the service, so like the way you implement software or the way uh, the software evolves from the software vendor perspective, the research and development is actually the same. The only difference is that we work with communities all around the world, but we, we have the same quality uh, development cycle than traditional vendors where we host our own core base and we, we modify it. Okay, that's great. Yeah, so it's it's a bit different from from ERP solutions in that way. So I, I still don't see you, Eric. Okay, so he's asking ask question. How is open source different from low code or custom dev solutions? So basically, um, um, open source is just a way to produce software. It's not a business model. It's not the business model is the same than traditional software. It's just a way to work better with the communities and open to the world with a more open approach to everything we do and more transparent. The low-code approach is just having a framework that allows to uh, customize the system without development. Uh, and we have that with Odoo too. We have an application that it's called uh, Odoo Studio that allows you to customize um, all your application without development. So we do both open source and we do also have a low-code solution. 
where you can customize your own application or develop your own application without development. That's very useful to adapt the software to a lot of different clients without going uh, in very cost, uh, highly expensive uh, budget because development always costs uh, a lot. Perfect. Now that sounds good. And so, so it's it's almost sort of a, a hybrid in between uh, commercial. So when you are doing three, well. okay, good. So it looks like you still here and see me. Uh, yeah. Maybe. And for those of you just joining, we we lost. If you have other question, maybe what I should say is that um, Odoo is not fully open source. It's what we call an open core business model, where you have a part of the software that is free open source, uh, which is Odoo Community. It's one of our product. And we have another product, which is Odoo Enterprise, which is for a fee. And so 80% only of the features we have are open source. Um, we still have 20% of our features that are for a fee. So it's a mixed model, model between proprietary software and open source software. Got it. OK. Perfect. Well, I'm going to try and reconnect uh, Fabian here in just a moment. Let me see if I can get him back so, on. Can you hear me? Um, so, so I guess uh, I another question I'll have is. Why is that? Oops. I'm gonna and I apologize to the audience here. I'm Maybe typing questions to Fabian. Think. Okay, do you hear me now, Fabian? Yeah, I had to reload mine on my side. Sorry. Okay. So it's okay now, you hear me? Yes, perfect. And I see you. Oh perfect. All right. Well, well, that'll be a, a lot easier than me trying to type the questions and <laughs> and you not being able to hear me. Um, okay, so that's a good overview of how open source systems like Odoo are different from off-the-shelf ERP systems and also how it's different from low-code or custom development solutions. How, how does an organization know if uh, if an open source solution like Odoo is a good fit? What, what kind of organizations do you find that Odoo is a better fit for than others? I think organizations don't care about open source and shouldn't care about open source. I mean, open source is just a license. You don't choose your uh, ERP or business apps based on the license. Um, the license is important, but it's not what matters. What matters is that does it does the job for you? The, the, is it complete? Does it cover all you need out of the box? So it's more about comparing product. Open source, in my opinion, is not a value for the end user. It's just a better way to produce software. The value for the end user is comparable with traditional ERP. Uh, and because we have this fast uh, development model, we could get to a better value for our clients. But uh, ultimately, what matters for the end user is not that it's open source, because at the end, it does like every other property software. He pays a subscription. He has an implementation service company that does the service. He has warranties on his bug fix and his support. So at the end, it's the same. It's just that we have a better way to produce software in a much faster way because, as you can see with the evolution of Odoo, in just a few years, we, we are now talking in millions of users. Uh, where, where When I started, the VCs told me you, you need 30 days to do an ERP. 30 years, sorry, to do an ERP. And we just did it in a short period of time because of this open and transparent approach. Right. That's interesting. So what is it, um, how often do, do customers make significant changes to do you know in that open source environment one of the benefits i would think is that you could it has the flexibility to be able to modify the software change the code how, how often do customers actually do that versus just using it the way the way it's originally built so our approach is very similar to the traditional software where we try to minimize development 
Um, it's uh, uh, every partner has its own approach. So every implementation service company has its own approach. Some prefer to develop more, others prefer to develop less. We, as a software vendor, we recommend uh, usually uh, more standard implementation based on best practices rather than trying to redo everything. The good thing with Odoo is that we cover so much in standard that we go much further than the traditional ERP just out of the box. So we need less development than traditional software. Like traditional software, they don't do e-commerce or they don't do business intelligence or they do with different products that you have to integrate. So it costs a lot. They don't do point of sales. They don't go on social marketing. And with Odoo, all those things are completely out of the box. So when we usually answer to a large client, they release a requirement. The others, like SCP and Dynamics, most of the time, they answer with six or seven different software. And they have to integrate things. And, and, and so it gets very complex and it costs a lot. With Odoo, it's different because we cover so much in standard, because we have 30,000 hats from the community app store, the largest app store in the world. We can deliver all these things in a single platform. So not only the customer has a better solution because everything is integrated, including his point of sale, his e-commerce, business intelligence, and so on. But also, it's much easier to implement because an integration costs a lot. Right. Yeah. So, so in this case, then, when when you have customers that implement Odoo, they don't necessarily need to have a super deep technical competency in house to be able to support a product like this. I mean, they could still use it, sort of similar to how they would use an off-the-shelf system. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, but yeah, you're right. And it's actually what we want to do. We want to commoditize the ERP market. When I started, ERP costed a lot of money, even for small companies, you had to 50,000 euro, 100,000 euro, even for the small companies. What we want to do is to make it affordable for everyone. Um, and so for that, we need things to work out of the box and to cover all the things that the majority of the customer need. But on top of having all the, the features available out of the box, we also have uh, like a large app store, so we can use apps from the community. And also Odoo Studio that allows you to customize with a few drag and drops so that you can do customization without going uh, on the development side. And of course, obviously, if you need even more for the very large, when we when you start to get with 1,000, 2,000 users, you always have developments. And that there you can develop. And the good thing with open source is that we are based on uh, modern technologies. I mean, it's Python, PostgreSQL, so developments are much easier than traditional software. Right. We're in the midst of a conversation here with a clip of Fabian, the CEO of Odoo, and I having an interview. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 90. We're here playing you a clip of my interview with Fabian, who's the CEO of Odoo. Uh, let's continue the conversation. Now, how has how is open source or Odoo in particular? How has Odoo 
evolved over the years? I mean, what are some of the major advancements you've seen in open source in general, but more specifically to Odoo, you know, since you started the company 15 years ago, what are some of the major, the biggest leaps or improvements you've seen in the yeah, every year the, the product is very very different if you have followed the do from version 10 11 it's the the, 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 the gaps are, are really big um look at the traditional erps from year to year they all always look the same <laughs> sometimes with a different design but you still have these complex bloated things uh, where although it's different uh, the way i see the thing is that um a few years ago, 10 years ago, the complexity was to have uh, to manage the business process and uh, to have your accounting data consolidated from all the departments. That was what all the traditional ERPs tried to do. And, and they did it and it works well. Uh, they support most of the core business process. Uh, but the thing is, now we have to go much further. And what we do at Odoo is not only support the business process, of course, uh, is to really have a productivity tools for every employee. We want the worker in the shop floor to be more efficient, the accountant to do more less uh, manual uh, recording, or the cashier in, in the, for retailers that uh, have better tools. And that's where I believe we, we went uh, much faster than all the others because nobody's there yet. They are all very painful to use, um, whereas Odoo is extremely simple and, and, and fast um, because we, we, we focused on that since no five or seven years while the other were still trying to go on the cloud <laughs> yeah that is a big liability of, of some of those uh, legacy erp vendors for sure yeah. um what are, what are some of the benefits of open source in general you know when you talk about open and i think you've alluded to this in some of your yeah, there, there is still a benefit uh, so what i said it's not very different from traditional software as a customer point of view as a development point of view it's very different because we have a uh, close to 100,000 people who lives on the do their full-time job. So we get feedback from all around the world, contributions and so on. So as a development point of view, it allows the product to grow faster. Uh, but this, there is still an, a very big advantage for the customer is that there is no lock-in. One of the main issues that customers have with traditional ERP is the big lock-in. You never know what will, what's going to be the price. The price might increase year after year. Uh, it's not easy to switch technology. It's not easy to find consultant that knows the technology. The thing with open source is that it's it's teached in a lot of universities, so you have resources all around the world. It's open, so students can learn or people can learn even without having to be partner with a large name. Um, and also because with Odoo specifically, when you have 80% open source and 20% for a fee, the customer has access to the source code. So we don't lock in for every, every time he needs something. Uh, if, for instance, we are too expensive, he can just ask someone else. Um, and so that creates a pressure on the price. And as a result, the price of the subscription is much lower because we cannot afford to charge the same price than the others do. Mm -hmm. uh, because our biggest competitor is our open source product. Right. And, and who is your, your biggest competitor? It's, uh, it's Odoo Community. So we have Odoo Enterprise that we sell and Odoo Community is an open source product. It's our biggest community. If we lose a deal, it's, they go for the free version. Um, maybe I should... It's not the data. Also, when that's for for the pressure on the price on the market, I don't consider that we have a competitor. So obviously, there are plenty of players on this market. There are hundreds of ERPs and business apps and so on. Uh, but uh, despite the fact that SAP or Microsoft spend billions of dollars to reach the SMEs market, they all failed. I mean, for the small companies, the equipment rate is barely nothing. For the mid-sized companies, it's eighteen percent equipment rate. 
despite the fact that everyone tried. So basically, nobody succeeded, including us. Huh? We didn't <laughs> succeed neither. We do less than one percent of the market. So, um, so the way I see the thing is that we are not fighting against competitors because nobody succeeded to make something affordable and real productivity tools for the employees. We are trying to do something that nobody did before. We are trying to make uh, management software accessible, affordable, and real productivity tools where the users save time instead of losing time recording data in a system. And that's something that nobody succeeded to do. So for me, it's not about the technical fighting about a competitor. It's more a technical challenge that we have to crack. Right. Interesting. Okay. And that, that's super interesting. So. Um what sort of uh so you mentioned that open source is uh you know do in particular is um it you don't notice it any different it, from an end user perspective you don't know you don't necessarily know or need to know that it's open source versus a off-the-shelf erp system but from a technical perspective um if if you do want to make changes to the software if you do want to add apps or do some integration to other third-party apps or whatever the case may be what kind of technical competencies do you need that's different from if you were using an off-the-shelf system? Yeah, the main difference is that all the dependencies and the components we use are open source and well-known. So you are not locked in a very uh, proprietary database that costs a lot or different software. Everything is free and accessible. So for the, for, the, for the customer or the partners, if they want to develop their own things, they use common technologies, JavaScript, HTML, and not very specific language <laughs> like ABAB. Um, uh, so, because we rely on standard and very common best practice, it's easier for the developers. It's also because we it allows us to create the software faster. Our technologies are a bit more modern than the traditional player. Most of the players have very old technology when you have to customize uh, the software, where we rely on Python and JavaScript, which, which are the two most used languages in the world right now. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. And by the way, if, um, I, I know I've got a lot of questions for you, and I'll keep going with those questions. But anyone in the audience, if you have questions on the on the live chat, please feel free to chime in. I'd love to hear what questions you have about open source, about Odoo, uh, digital transformation in, in general. Um, so, what do you see as the? You, we've talked quite a bit about the the benefits of open source, how it's different, how it's similar to uh, call it traditional ERP systems. But what are the risks of open source? When when you in other words, when you do you ever have customers where you feel like this particular situation, our product is not a good fit or there's a certain well, amount of because of that? The, the risks are the same than property software. I mean, uh, it's all about doing the implementation uh, project correctly, which is having the right project managers, uh, ch uh, dealing with the change management, avoiding to go too much in the custom development. So it's basically the same kind of risk that what you will get in a property software open source. So that doesn't change a lot. Um, for, for that part of the business, delivering the service or, or selling the software, the approach is really the same than traditional software. Right. Okay. Good deal. Um, and then, so I guess just shifting gears a little bit and talking about a uh, little bit more about Odoo in particular, um, I know you had a, a major new release just this month. And in fact, we, when we were scheduling this, uh, this, uh, this interview, we, we were sort of scheduling it around your, your release of that product. What, what are some of the enhancements some of the major enhancements that you guys have made in this new release that you're, that just came out this month? Yeah, it's, we, we, we don't develop new applications between, because we already cover pretty much everything. So it's more about improving the quality and the efficiency in every application. 
And so for instance, now you have a voice conference, voice calls, like you, you could have in Discord, but directly in the software. So let's say you are in a product and we, we are in, you are in the uh, PLM, um, product lifecycle management, you change your bill of material, you can chat uh, with someone from the engineering right in the, in the formula of your bill of materials. And all the things are mapped together. Um, it's fully collaborative when you write a specification or terms and conditions on a sale order, you see the different people writing with you. So we did a lot of things uh, following the pandemic to be sure that everyone can work remotely and that we support. See, I appear to have lost you, Fabian. Yep, right. We, we lost him temporarily, but it looks like we might have him back here. You, yeah. You back? There you are. So you hear, you hear me and see me okay? Yeah, perfect. Okay, perfect. All right. So I'll let you continue with uh, the, the enhancements you were, you were talking about. Yeah, so we, we adapted the software to the pandemic situation where you can uh, manage people that are remote. So you have a voice conference, video conference, uh, live collaboration. So every document people can write at the same time on the same document, like specifications on the task or terms and conditions or quotation. You can have different people writing the same quotes at the same time and you see the cursor of the others. Um, and we continued all uh, improvement through the different apps, whether it's accounting, uh, inventory, warehouse management, and so on. Uh, there are like 5,000 improvements in the release, so it's very hard to say right. <laughs> what's new. So, so more incremental. So you have all the major functionalities that an organization would need, um, but these are more incremental improvements you're making each each year. Yeah, we already cover pretty much everything. We use App Store, 30,000 apps. It's the largest enterprise app store in the world. So the, the coverage is super large. We already go much further than traditional ERPs because as I said, we are in point of sale, PLM quality maintenance. If you are in the industry, we are in the retail with the point of sale in e-commerce, social marketing, all those, all those areas where traditionally ERP doesn't go. So the scope is already uh, amazing. What we want to do now is to improve uh, every user. We want to be faster to record timesheet, faster for an accountant to have a better artificial intelligence that process their bills automatically. So it's more about uh, productivity on every single details. Uh, for instance, one of the main improvements I like in the in the new version is that we saved 30 to 50 milliseconds at every click. It's faster. It doesn't seem a lot, but when everything is snappy as fast in Gmail, Gmail or Facebook, the user really feel more productive. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, where, where? So one thing that um, I've noticed about Odoo is it seems like in in Europe, where you're based here, I know you're based in Belgium, and uh, a lot of your team is in Belgium, and in Europe. Our European clients seem to be more familiar with with Odoo, but it's 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 a name that's sort of that's spreading throughout the world. Where what geographies are you seeing the most growth right now? Just in terms of, of your product, uh, the main one and the largest uh, revenues we have is in the United States of America. So um, we have five hundred employees there, and it's the fastest growing and revenue we have today. But uh, at Odoo, we have uh, partners in one hundred forty countries, so it's pretty large. And uh, we ourselves have offices in Buffalo, um, San Francisco, New York, Dubai, Hong Kong, China. So it's pr pretty much gl global. 50% of the resources are in Belgium. Okay, good. So it's, it's more, uh, 
it sounds like it's more you guys are more global and have more of a global presence than yeah than because it's we we everything started and and it's still online um so we we started to answer the leads where they come from and because we were very much active online um it's very spread on a lot of different countries got it okay and um, that makes one of the strengths of Odoo, by the way because uh we for instance we integrate with thirty-five thousand banks we support accounting localization of more than 100 country, countries. So we are more global than any other players because, because of that. Being right. Belgium is very bad, I mean, to start a business because the market is super small. It's very hard. You have to, to speak three languages just for 10 millions of people. But it forces you to be global by default, to be multi-language, support multiple localization if you want to do something. Right. Yeah. And, and one thing that's, that's interesting about... Um, your, your global reach is that, you know, you, being an independent and technology agnostic consulting firm, we, we have the luxury of being able to kind of view all the different systems and the different players in the marketplace. And I, and I would say, you know, if I had to speculate just in my qualitative observational opinion, um, the, I think Odoo has, has probably the most, um, the most committed and passionate ecosystem I've seen. I don't know of any other, I mean, every software vendor has their, um, you know, the people that are very much, they're, they're pro, you know, they support that product. They, they want to focus on the uh, positives and, and, and sometimes ignore the negatives of, of the products. But with Odoo, it's, it's totally different. It's, it's on a whole nother level in terms yeah, but of... Do you know why it is that? No, that's what I was going to ask you is why, why is that? <laughs> um, because our users love the system. And it's not the case with the others. Uh, if you do survey with traditional uh, ERP, the user usually don't like their system. They feel that it's recording data. They, 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 they are wasting time on the system. There are a lot of things that they still do in spreadsheet. With other, it's totally different. We totally empower the users. So all users, they, they love. And because of that, we have a lot of fans on Odoo. Uh, all these users that really love what they, because it, it's been a game changer for the company. So for them, it was life and death uh, sometimes. Uh, and because of that, um, they become very uh, passionate about the software and they follow us and help us uh, a lot. We don't do that much of marketing, but we do one thing more better than the others is word of mouth. Mm. We really have a community that supports us because uh, they really, really like the product. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, I get that positive uh, feedback from customers and clients that are using the product, but also from the consultants and, and people that are part of the ecosystem. I mean, why is why are they so passionate? Because just to back up for a second, uh, whenever I say anything negative about any product out there, NetSuite or Oracle, SAP, whatever it is, I'll always get some people to push back in the ecosystem and say, oh, that's not true. Or, you know, you, you, that we're better than you're saying we are. But when I say anything remotely negative about Odoo, it's just a different response. Like it's it's very strong, not just from users, but also people within the ecosystem. So what is it you guys have done to build this global, committed, passionate ecosystem in addition to your to your customers? Yeah, we are good at working with the communities. I mean, a lot of software vendors, they don't hear the, the customers. And so we are good at working with them. We work on GitHub online. It's transparent. Um, we have uh, communities of translator, communities of developer, communities of accountants all around the world. So we are good at organizing and working with communities. But I really believe that uh, the only way to transform users into fans is, is for them to be very, very happy. And that's what we focus on. We, we focus so that the user are extremely happy and that when they start using Odoo, it's a game changer for the company. And I believe that's where the difference is with traditional software. 
with traditional software, the deploy process, and so the, the, the company runs better because of the software, but the user doesn't have a better efficiency because of the software. For us, it's different. All the users are super happy because we really improve their efficiency. Right, right. Good. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. So what about, um, who are your, so you mentioned that your your biggest competitor is is the free version uh, of, of the open source system. But what what major um, well-known off-the-shelf ERP vendors are, are your biggest competitors, or do you, you feel that are you're most likely to be competing with? Uh, I, I, I still I really think that we we uh, it depends on the market. On the small and the mid size, I really think that uh, the other competitors they, they they just failed. And so what we have to do is to succeed where other everyone else fails. So it's more a technical challenge. On the large companies, when we start above 500 users, we often see SCP. And when we work against SCP, usually the, the main issue we have is in the RFI. So you know you have different steps. It starts with the RFI, then they do a shortlist, and then an RFP, pricing, and then they select someone. We usually lose at the RFI because we are the new entrant on the market. We People are afraid of working with a do at the beginning. I mean, it's open source. They didn't hear about it. Um, and so usually we, we are not the favorite one before they saw the product. And then when they select a short list and they select three, if we succeed to get to that level, uh, when they see what we can do when we do demos of the product, everything changed. So for yeah. us, it's not about competing against them. It's just about our issues to make the world know that we exist. Because when people start looking at to do, uh, our winning rates are increasing like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen the same thing with our, with our clients. If it... If, if customers and potential customers can get past the fact that some of them haven't heard of Odoo or they have some perceived um, misunderstanding or negative view of open source, then if you get past that, then it seems like the, the win rate is very high for, yeah. for Odoo. And even for the pricing, sometimes it's an issue because we are way too low. Sometimes we lose deal because they think it's, it couldn't be true that it's so low and they expect the quality to be low because the price is low. It's just all strategy to make ERPs affordable to everyone, but... Uh, uh, our pricing per user is eight in, in the United States. It's twenty-five dollars per user in per month. Uh, the public price. Huh? Uh, we also have discount for partner, but we start at that price. And in Europe, it's eighteen euro per user in per month. In Africa, Asia, it's eight six dollars per user in per month. So when we show that kind of price to our uh, to our to our uh, large players, they are like, "Wow, that couldn't be true." And sometimes we lose deal about that, but we want to stick to the price because we really want to transform the market. Right. Well, I think it's a good model because, you know, one problem I see in the, the cloud subscription world is that there are so many escalators and things that will increase your cost over time uh, with mm -hmm. cloud solutions in general. So I think having that lower price point, it may be shocking to some, it may not be believable up front, but I think longer term, that's going to be a, a strength of, of mm -hmm. low price and transparent price. No hidden cost, no bad surprise or... For us, for instance, we, all our price are in one page. You go on odoo.com slash pricing and you have the price of everything, the service, the extra. So there is never any bad surprise. Right. So um, what about um, when you look at specific systems in the market? Like I know you mentioned SAP is, is one that you compete with often for, for the larger organizations. Um, you, and you were talking about how when, if you get to the short list in, or, or to the demo process where people see Odoo and then they see SAP, you, you have a high win rate. Um, what is it? Why is that? I mean, why why do you beat SAP in that example? If we focus on SAP, why does Odoo win out over SAP? Uh, I can tell you a story when we, we are working with EY. 
anyway, bring us a lot of large customer um, and we do the implementation. And when we started working with them, they, 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 give, they asked us to do demo for them. So they were like, we have this big customer, very specific requirement. Can you do a demo? And so we assigned a salesperson that went and go for the demo. And we did that a few times. And uh, one time they, they asked us to do the same, but the demo for, was for the next day. And we had to do the demo for the next day. And we did the demo like we used to do usual with lim limited preparation, just set up the data and do. And we did the same quality of demo. And what EY told us is that, wow, we thought that you were preparing demo for two months every time we were bringing a leads to you because it's what's so good and so perfect, perfectly meets the specification of the customer. And now we see that you see you do the same thing in one day. And actually, every time they, they bring us a customer, we, um, we spend less than one day to prepare the demo. It's just that the product is good and we could cover the need very easily. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about creating uh, smoke and mirrors. You know, a lot of vendors have to create. Yeah, if you have complex flow, whatever the flow, the others have to use different products, integration, uh, do some customizations just to reach uh, the very specifics of the customer. And usually for do you don't need that. Sometimes you have to use community modules, sometimes a little bit of studio to customize, but you can pretty much all the time do 90% of the needs of the customer right away. You so, should try, huh? You go on the website of Odoo.com and you click on schedule a meeting with the sales. You can write your business flow. I want to see that. That has them something very complex, like consolidation, multi-countries, multi-wearers. And you will see that for in 24 hours, you will have a perfect demo according to your need. Wow, that's that's interesting. I did not know that. So that's, that's yeah, you can try on the website. You basically, it's usually in 24 hours or 48 hours. You can even pick the, the hours when you want to demo yourself. And is it Odoo uh, direct resources that are typically doing those demos? Yeah, for that. And usually that's for the first qualification of the customer. So we show them the product because that's one of the first thing we do as opposed to the rest of the market. We show them the product at the first call with the customer. And after that, depending on the need, like if the, if it's a larger customer, we usually work with a partner. Okay. We're in the midst of a conversation here with a clip of Fabian, the CEO of Odoo, and I having an interview. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 90. We're here playing you a clip of my interview with Fabian, who's the CEO of Odoo, uh, let's continue the conversation. So, so we talked about SAP. Now, if we go back, let's go to the lower end of the market, sort of the, the small and mid market. Um, first of all, for a smaller client, let's just say it's a customer with less than a hundred users. Let's just say is a rough number. Um, what type of technology are those organizations typically moving from when they buy Odoo or when they adopt Odoo? 
most of the time they have a mix of different software. They could have Magento for the e-commerce, WinBooks for the accounting, uh, spreadsheet for the inventory. So they have like a mix uh, IT stack of seven, eight different software that more or less integrate to each other, but not very well. And some do, others don't. And so they want to rationalize their stack and, uh, and change everything. And usually we start one by one. Uh, we replace software one by one. So um, for the small client, we deploy one new application every two weeks. So that's the average we do. So for an application for us, is if you buy sale, purchase, uh, accounting, inventory, manufacturing, that's five applications. So the timing is 10 weeks. OK. So are you, do you oftentimes replace like QuickBooks for the smaller side of the market? Is that, or is that? No, pretty much all the time we, we deploy an American customer, we replace QuickBooks. QuickBooks is very famous on the small uh, companies in the US. Sure. Yeah. Okay. What about um, Oracle NetSuite? Is that one that you compete with often in the mid, in the small and mid market? Um, in in, the, in Europe, it's more it's more a failure than a success. So we, there is barely no NetSuite in Europe. They, they have some, but I, I don't even remember having lost one time <laughs> NetSuite. Sounds in the like US, it's a little bit more. Actually, it's fun because we like when NetSuite is in the loop. We really like um, because we know that when a prospect comes and NetSuite in the, is in the loop, the prospect knows the value of the things because they're ready to pay like seven or eight times more than what we used to charge. So we know that the sale will be super easy for us when the customer asks NetSuite uh, um, for the for the yeah. So for us, it's quite a good thing to 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 meet NetSuite. Well, it seems like such a different product too. I mean, it's a SaaS, a much less flexible SaaS product that doesn't where your focused Odoo is strength is its flexibility. NetSuite, yeah, flexible. That's why we we do the demo force because. When you hear the sales pitch, everything, every ERP seems the same and they are all great. And, but when you look at the product, that's very different. When you see how fast you can do things, deploy barcode in your inventory uh, or very advanced things in accounting, that, that's when the customer understand that this is nothing comparable. Right, right. Okay, what about um, Salesforce on the CRM side? I'm just going to go through a few products and just see how you think it compares. When you look at Salesforce CRM or, or Financial Force on the uh, financial side. For Salesforce, it's, it's, it's more difficult than NetSuite when we face them, uh, mostly because they are very strong in marketing. I mean, customer want, there are some customers that want to buy Salesforce, even though they, they don't know everything about Salesforce. They just have Salesforce in mind. And so it's very hard because you have to find a fight against that. In terms of products, uh, they used to be leader in uh, in sales and CRM uh, a few years ago. It's not the case anymore. I believe Odoo or software like Pipedrive are way more secure and more efficient uh, than Salesforce is. At least for the small and mid-sized organizations. Right. Okay. And then uh, you know, looking at uh, you know, sort of a mid-market manufacturing company that might be considering, <laughs> say, um, Epicor. In for IFS, you know, one of those mid-tier manufacturing focus solutions. How do, how do you how do you compare? Or what are your strengths or weaknesses? Yeah, on manufacturing, the the key for us is that we do everything out of the box. Like you have the PLM, the quality, the maintenance, the IoT box, so that you can connect the machine directly with the software and the people. And uh, in order to deploy that with the traditional software, it costs a massive amount of money. Um, and for us, all those applications are standard. You can connect your CAD, you, and all those things works uh, pretty much out of the box. So um, 
the way we present to the manufacturing industry is just to show them the modern way of working with tablet in the shop floors, uh, with everything integrated from the quality to the maintenance to the PLM. And that's something that the others cannot do unless they spend a few weeks preparing for the demo. Right, right. Now, is there anything, any sort of manufacturer, uh, let's just say a complex make-to-order manufacturer or some other outlying type of manufacturing organization that would not be a good fit for Odoo or where you feel like there's there's weaknesses in the no, product? Odoo are both continuous manufacturing uh, and... Um, uh, or uh, assembly lines or biomedical. So we are active in a lot of manufacturing, different manufacturing businesses. Um, yeah. If you are, if you are asking, the, the only thing that Odoo doesn't really do uh, is the payroll in human resources. That's the only application where I think we are late uh, and we don't do a lot of countries. On the payroll? Uh, payrolls. Yeah. 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 We are good in HR, but payroll, we don't do it uh, in, in out of the box. What about in manufacturing like that configure price quote process? Is that something that uh, is is common or that, that Odoo can support? Well, that's standard. Huh? Very advanced. Uh, product. We have a very advanced product configurator. So we multi-level variants uh, uh, that impacts directly the bill of material. So you could have a customizable bill of materials where you reuse parts. We even do things that where everyone suffers usually, like engineering to order. It's very hard because you have a mix of engineering and you have, a, you have to get the cost from the engineering department, which is time spent usually in a single project where you have purchase and manufacturing. Pretty much every uh, software I know suffers in that kind of flow. They also suffer in subcontracting. And those are the flows that are quite easy to set up with a, with a do. So I believe the more complex the, the business process of the, of the company is, the more chance you ha we have to, to, to win the deal. Got it. Okay. Now, now, what about um, just I'm just sort of working through some of the the well-known uh, ERP systems in the market, just seeing how Odoo compares. What about um, Oracle, um, Oracle Cloud, ERP, Oracle, you know, in their Oracle Cloud suite of products? How, how do you um, how does Odoo compare? Uh, I have no I, not enough experience to compare uh, with them. I know a lot NetSuite, but not uh, the their other offers. Okay. Well, I really know it because I worked on it. I tried it and, uh, a lot, and I, I've migrated a lot of customers from the tweet to Odoo, but the others offer I, I don't know. From okay. Account. How about Microsoft Dynamics 365? How do how does uh... Oh yeah, that's. Uh, you know how I sell uh, when I when we we are facing uh, Dynamics as a competitor. What I usually do is to give them the free trial of uh, Microsoft Dynamics and the free trial of Odoo, and I tell them you have to test yourself. Because on the paper, everyone seems great, and you probably think that Microsoft is great because Teams and Microsoft Office are great. But you have to try the ERP before giving that to your users. And so one of the first thing I do when I know that Microsoft Dynamics is in the loop, I send them the free trial to Microsoft Dynamics. Only a, a few people know that they have that. You have to look on Google because it's not on the main page of Microsoft Dynamics. And I send the link to both free trial, Odoo and Microsoft Dynamics or customer or prospect and I'll test that and then you will see by your by yourself. Right. Got it. Okay. Um so what what do you what do you see as the you know and I didn't tell you I was gonna ask you this question, so I apologize for going off script, but where where do you see the uh ERP enterprise software industry headed in general? You know, what are some of the major trends you see or things you're watching on the horizon? Yeah. In order to predict the future, you have to understand the past. 
So let's look at the past first of what happened in the, uh, let's say, the operating system. It started with Unix, Minix, DrDOS, MS-DOS, uh, BOS, and so on. And fast forward today, there is only Linux and Microsoft uh, Windows and uh, iOS. And then came the word processor. You had Lotus 1, 2, 3, it works, or perfect. Fast forward today, only three are remaining. I believe management software are higher up in the stack. They are way more complex because not only you have the technical complexity, uh, but you also have the business complexity. And because of that, we are at the same level that operating system or world processor were 15 years ago. We are still in an environment where we have pretty much a lot of players. These players are not mature. It's painful to use their software. Um, and they are consolidating and buying each other's. Uh, everyone is trying to buy his competitor right now. Uh, and we are still at this, phase, at this phase. And I believe that in, in the future, I don't know if it's 5, 10 or 15 years, it's going to be the same. Only three will remain. Uh, and it's it's going to be a community market. You will use management software like you you use Word or Excel today. Mm. Um, and so my goal for the future is just to survive <laughs> to be in this tree. So what do you do? You envision uh, Odoo potentially selling to a larger vendor at some point in the future, or do you envision a, a future where you remain independent and you become a potential contender for that? Standards. Yeah. Odoo is, is not for sale, and I can guarantee that myself because I own the majority of the shares. Um, we already, and so basically, yeah, we want to continue focus on the long term. So we, we will never do an IPO. We don't plan to be listed. Uh, we want to stay independent, to stay open source. Um, we, we don't work for the money. We just uh, have fun transforming the world. And uh, we, won't, we wouldn't trade that, uh, having a massive impact on millions of companies for, for a big bunch of money. So no, there will, no, will be no sale. And we don't acquire neither. It's, it's the way we work. We build rather than buying. Uh, and we want to keep our, our company culture. So we, don't, we are not looking to acquire a company neither. Right. What about... Um let's talk about technological trends like um you know ai robotic uh, process automation things like that what what do you see as the big technical trends or or things that you think could be game changers for odoo and for other systems in the market um uh, it, it's the future but it's not the future the way people think it is i believe it's not as important as what everyone says that ai is the thing uh, I mean, for, for the mid-sized companies or the small companies, they, barely, they will barely use AI. So, of course, you have AI here and there. Like uh, in the do, we have uh, AI to process your bills automatically. So you scan or you get the, get the PDF and we record the data for you. So all those things are important. But compared to the rest of the software, it's small details. Uh, I believe the, the real revolution in the ERP industry will be to have a software that makes the user more efficient not a software that they hate using or really a software. Like, you know, a lot of my time is to sit next to the user and check how they work. That's what I do a lot. I'm more product owners than a CEO sometimes. Um, and I'm always surprised that any job position, they, they spend more than 30% of the time on tasks that you could avoid. Like uh, so a buyers in a company, the buyers, you know, that they spend more than 30% of their time to do follow-ups. Every time they send a code, they, could, they, they phone to be sure that they received it, record it in the system. And then a few days before receiving the product, they call to be sure that the product will arrive. So otherwise, it's very painful for the product manufacturing line. And these guys spend 30% of their time just doing follow-ups. But follow-ups can be massively automated. Every time you send a code, you ask the, 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 the supplier to click on a button to confirm he registered his code. You can automate an email 10 days before receiving the product. All the things are automated today. 
And it's the same for pretty much every position, like a recruiter. Recruiter spend 35% of their time uh, just do scheduling meeting. They have to schedule meeting with the interviewer, with the interviewee, and then reschedule. And and, uh, and when you look at their mailbox, 35% of the time is just scheduling meeting. Scheduling meeting is something that nowadays is fully automated. You send the link, uh, the link knows everyone's calendar and they the schedule, and that's it. And if they want to reschedule, they don't need to call the recruiter. So we want the recruiter to focus on what they do good, which is talking to people and not spending time scheduling meetings. And that's the way, uh, that's where I think is the future of uh, management software, is to help these guys to be more efficient by avoiding everything we can avoid, all administrative tasks, repetitive tasks, uh, reports they do manually and things like that. Got it. <coughs> that's an interesting perspective, especially the way you tied it back to um, productivity tools, you know, 20 years ago and the evolution of Microsoft products and other Productivity tools. That's interest. That's really interesting take on the enterprise technology space because I had not thought of that as a, as a trend. But I think that, that makes yeah. a lot of thing. We we have to focus about about the employees, not about the business process and the company. And when we start trying to do tools for the employees, everything change. And you can really decouple the productivity of an of a company if you give better tools to the employees. If you support your business process, it's just the minimum. You don't make your company more efficient. Right. So I guess it is a, as a way to sort of wrap this all up and, and um, tie everything together that we've talked about so far, just being the CEO of the company and you've been in the industry a long time as well, you're supporting your product, but you also know your competitors and you, you see a lot of transformations in the space. What words of, of wisdom would you give to an organization that's about to start either a software evaluation or a, an implementation of sorts? What, what are some two or three major words of advice you'd give them? One of the main issues we have is that companies are totally inefficient and most of the time they don't even know it. They are doing the same thing since 10 years and for them it's normal that the recruiters spend 30% of their time in scheduling meetings. And so we spend a lot of time educating the market. And most of the companies, they don't want to change because they think that it costs a lot of money. They really think that it's, they don't want to start very complex projects spanned over one or two years. And so the main advice I have is that no, everything changed. Everything is more mature, technology is affordable. We can deploy things very fast. Uh, it's cheap, 18 euro per user per month. So the main advice I have is just to, for them to test and check what exists. They can right. do a free trial. They can even start and test by, on their own. You know, that triggers a, another, just a, a follow-up side question is, you know, when, when customers buy Odoo, are they typically buying the entire suite of products or are they usually starting with CRM or e-commerce, just one piece I, of it? It's a very, very good question because that's also what makes the difference between us and the rest of the markets. We don't consider ourselves an ERP. We are more a suite of business apps where we have different apps, but if you get all these apps, they fully integrate to each other. So you have an ERP. And we have 50% of the clients we have who did not start it with an ERP vision. They needed a CRM or they needed an accounting software or website or an e-commerce. And you can use Odoo just for one app. And it's very easy. It's not like traditional ERP. You wouldn't use SAP just for CRM. Um, and so we have 50% of our customers. They, 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 they start with just one application and 50% come with a more strategic ERP vision. And that's funny because for the large clients, like above 1,000 users, most of the time, they were using Odoo before deciding to switch their ERP. So when they, they do a, 
the RFP for the ERP, most of the time we come to them and say, hey, by the, no, by the way, do you know that your HR department and your manufacturing department are using your Odoo for that and that purpose? Right. So they've, it's almost like you're, you're bridging the gap between the, the trade-off or the decision that companies often have to make, which is, do I go with a single ERP system or do I go with, with a best of breed exactly. app? Yeah. You're sort of doing both. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a question of the past. You don't need anymore to choose between best of breed and ERP. Uh, no, you can, because technologies are more mature, you can uh, have both of them. Right. Yeah, very interesting. All right. Thank you, Fabian. Thank you for uh, being on the show a year ago. And it's good to hear that clip again. In fact, we've got a few takeaways now in the context of Odoo experience, which just happened last week. Uh, we'll debrief on some of those lessons and takeaways here in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 90. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. And Kyler, we just had this clip uh, we played again with, with uh, Fabian, the CEO of Odoo. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, well, we're excited to hear some of your key takeaways from the experience. But I think with Odoo, the interesting part about their evolution is there has been open source ERP systems before. Um, and it's not really mainstream but uh, it is something that Odoo kind of created a brand around making it cool and innovative and all of those types of things. So I'm so interested to hear your experience. Um, you know, obviously you go to a lot of software conventions, but this one specifically feels like kind of the cool kid in the, the cafeteria, the thing that everybody wants to talk about. And not only that, they've almost built their own influencer network because of their developer network that they use as a main kind of muscle to their business. So what were kind of your experience around the ambiance or uh, the event and, and what were kind of some product roadmaps that you took away from things that are coming down the pipeline? Yeah, well, first of all, the, the conference was huge. It was about I, they said they had about 10,000 people registered and it was massive. I mean, it was a really, it's the biggest conference I've been to since, uh, certainly since COVID. Um, now, granted, I haven't been to Salesforce and her Dreamforce and uh, Oracle's big conference. I think those are a little bit bigger, but this is one of the bigger conferences I've ever been to. Um, 
but it was uh, it was really interesting. I mean, I, I there's a lot I didn't know about Odoo as far as just sort of their their ecosystem. For example, I didn't realize how robust or how extensive their partner network has become. So they've got a lot of third party, not just implementers, but also companies that are taking Odoo and um, sort of like the Microsoft model and and turning it and and customizing the software for specific industry verticals or specific functions and things like that. Um, but I think the one, you know, another thing that was really interesting about the, um, the conference too, was just the pricing. They, they totally changed their pricing now to where it's, it's almost more like a, it's more like a consumer software pricing model. It doesn't, it's not like other enterprise software pricing models I've seen. So in other words, you know, I looked at the U S the pricing in U S dollars, and now it's all bundled together to where you, you just pay a flat per user per month subscription fee. Um, and I think it's like $27 per month per user, I think is if I remember correctly. Um, and that, and that includes all the modules. So it's sort of like it's, it's all in on, on everything and you can, you know, you don't have to deploy all the modules, but, but you can, you know, kind of pick and choose what you want, but you have access to all of them. You can deploy them all, um, just based on the number of users. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, the branding is really good. I think they're really good at marketing, um, and they've gotten more aggressive and I think they're trying to get more aggressive in their marketing outside of Europe. Um, clearly they're, they're a big deal in Belgium and certain parts of Europe, but, um, I think there's a lot of untapped potential that they could be tapping into. Um, I also, you know, this isn't anything new, but I'm intrigued by this freemium model they have where it's sort of like, you can go to their website right now and download, um, or, or get access to their, uh, I think it's one module and for free. So you can pick any one module you want and get, um, sort of free access to it and use it for free. Um, and, and that's the way they hook you. And then eventually you'll want to presumably buy more modules and add more users and whatnot. So I think that's an inter interesting model. Um, so yeah, I mean, as far as um, functional takeaways and new capabilities, I honestly, Odoo 16 versus version 15, I don't, I couldn't tell you the big differences there. I saw a lot of stuff during the conference, but I'm not 100% clear on what's brand new versus what was already there. So they from what I understand, though, they've added hundreds of new functions. It might be over a thousand, if I remember correctly. I also interviewed their chief technology officer while I was there, too. That's another interview that we'll have um, on our YouTube channels uh, with their chief tech technology officer talking about some of the new enhancements and some of the new changes uh, to the software as well. And I think he said in that interview, there's over a thousand different things they improved or added uh, to the software. So those are a few of the things wow. there. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we're excited to hear that conversation again with Fabian um, and their CTO to kind of talk about what Odoo looks like. And and we'll keep an eye on kind of the the overall success of that freemium piece. And it's so different, right, to the, the sneaky contracting that can go into a traditional ERP system. Um, and I know Fabian says in your interview, Odoo is an ERP system. Many other people would disagree with that. Um, from many different levels. Uh, so we put out a lot of content around Odoo. If you have questions about that, all of our videos are completely agnostic and independent. So even when Eric goes to these these conferences, no one pays him to say the things that he 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 um, wants them to say. So we find that from our actual customer and client experience and our consultant experience. So you can watch those to kind of get a gauge of if it's a match for your organization. You're very flexible, innovative. If you need a ton of standardization, Odoo is it can be tough, but not um, you know a huge, 
huge barrier to entry as they move kind of more into the mainstream sphere. So thank you for sharing those key findings with us, Eric, and we look forward to those interviews. Yeah, and you just triggered another uh, takeaway, which is really important uh, from the conferences. It was clear to me at the conference that they're trying to move upstream, you know, outside of just being known as sort of a small and mid-market ERP solution, which is what what you know in our in our client base is more small and mid-sized companies that might consider Odoo, but they have a clear focus or desire to go after the big enterprises. And I'll be curious to see how that works. I, I'm honestly a mm-hmm. little bit skeptical of that as far as where they are yeah. right now, because it is a very, one of the strengths of the product is it's a very simple product and it's it's got more of a consumer technology feel to it, which is good from a usability perspective. But sometimes you need complexity in these systems when, Absolutely. when you're a big Fortune 500 company or whatever. And I, and I think they're going after that market. I just don't know. I'll be curious to see how well they, you know, what they do to keep that simplicity but add the robust complexity that some organizations need to be able to manage diverse, you know, business lines and things like that. So that's TBD, but we'll, we'll keep an eye on that for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's a trend in the industry when it comes to kind of this hot rise of low code to no code software, which is great. That's really cool that you can have that intuity and more technical or less technical users can actually manage these systems. But if you are a bigger business or have a certain competitive advantage, you really, really must go through the evaluation process to truly understand what you need as far as internal maintenance, support, sustainability, custom integrations, those types of of different pieces. All those boxes need to be understood and checked. So great movement for the industry, but needs to be mindful for businesses that are integrating those systems into their organization. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, good. Well, it was a good, good uh, trip, a good interview with, with, uh, or it was a good conference, a good interview with Fabian. Keep an eye out on the YouTube channels for the follow-up uh, interviews with Fabian and their chief technical officer, uh, Anthony, and those are being edited as we speak. So those should be out here in a, in a few weeks on the, our respective YouTube channels. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to sh- totally shift gears and have Clifford Martin on the show. We're going to play you a clip from a recent digital stratosphere event that we hosted with Clifford. And Clifford is the vice president or executive vice president of third stage consulting EMEA, which is Europe, Middle East, and Africa. He's based in South Africa, and he's going to talk about the role of executives in digital transformation failures. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 90. New episodes every Wednesday, so be sure to check us out every week for for new episodes. You can also go to our YouTube playlist or any of the audio podcast platforms to go listen to past episodes you might have missed as well, so be sure to check that out. 
I'm excited to play you this clip with Clifford Martin, who's our vice president or executive vice president of Third Stage Consulting uh, based out of Africa. And he's going to talk about the role of executives in digital transformation failures. So let's go ahead and roll the clip. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to to all the delegates who have forward to uh, a lot of interaction and questions. Please do feel free to, to interrupt me um, and just uh, kind of feel free to, to pose those questions as they come in. I think the, the interaction will be great. So, so, so why, why the role of the executive in ERP failure? You know, Kyla, one often having been in, the, in this industry for, for many years and dare I say decades, um, one often has the, the blame for ERP failures, and, and we can kind of unpack what failure means a little bit later, but the blame's often laid at, either at the feet of the, of the SI, the systems integrator or partners, or very often the solution isn't. And I do think that it's time we shift that conversation a little bit. Uh, we have to look at the, the role of the client executive in that failure. At the end of the day, as, as Eric has very um, elegantly articulated, the responsibility for success benefits does sit with the executive. So, so I just want to, I thought it would be useful to, to, to a bit of a deep dive on that. And I, I do hope there are some executives who are listening and I'd, I'd welcome their their questions. Um, so, so I'd like to touch on five specific points. Let me unpack this, this, this graph a little bit. On the vertical axis, company or organizational performance, however we can, um, and on the, on the bottom axis, time. And if we look at two, through the one or the other, there's going to be a high road to success and there's going to be a low road to failure it takes. I think that's the first important point to acknowledge. And there's no reason why we cannot have a very clear indication of these different phases. There's no reason why we... Yeah, sorry, Clifford, I'm just going to jump in. You're coming in and out a little bit choppy. Um, so I just want to let everyone know uh, that I am monitoring your questions as well. So it's not the stream, um, just that connectivity. So continue to put your, your questions in the chat, um, even if Clifford is a a bit uh, choppy on that side. We're just kind of working out the kinks. To, to, essentially, we, we do operate in an industry that is focused on implementation. And now I just want to talk to what, what we consider to be three critical phases in terms of that road to that, that ERP life cycle. Um, absolutely, the implementation is essential, but it really is just the enabling platform that we're putting in place at this stage. And too often, we have that premature declaration of victory at the point of go live and uh, the, the, the very effective project governance and oversight and structures and capabilities that we've put in place dissipates and things start to unravel a little bit as per that low road. And we fall into that, that valley of despair. Um, and of course, the, the, the depth and breadth of that valley of despair is going to, is going to vary depending on how far on that low road to failure we are. So it's absolutely essential that we keep the project on the high road. And, and even with the best will in the world, there is going to be some uh, disruption to business go live. Even if we do manage to stay on the high road to success and we have, and we avoid these common pitfalls, those five pitfalls that are defined on the low road to failure, even if we do avoid them, there's going to be some disruption. We are going, um, to some extent, we are going to the, the value of despair, but hopefully it is short lived and we are quickly able to come out of it. And I think from a, from a governance and, and tracking perspective, we're able to quickly come out of it and track the extent and, and understand 
whether we are on an upward curve on the way to that third phase of optimization. So I think that's the, the, the first thing that we need to recognize. Your digital transformation or ERP program is going to follow one of these two roads to some extent. Um, and very important that we understand on which route, on which road we are at any point in time. And very important to understand when we are moving from stabilization to optimization, because one cannot jump from implementation to optimization without stabilizing the solution first. We cannot achieve benefit of an unstable platform. Um, so it's fundamentally important that we are able to track this journey and understand which road we're on. So, so I did want to just explain that, that, that the EOP lifecycle, before we can actually understand what the executive's role is in ensuring that we stay on the high road and avoid the low road, and, that, um, and most importantly, that we avoid or we spend as little time as possible in that valley of despair. Great. So, so first point, we have to take a view of, of a digital transformation or ERP project from business case to business benefit. Too often, we, these projects default to a technology project, which is all about the implementation. Um, and that's not particularly helpful. It's the platform that we're putting in place. So let's then start to, to unpack these, these, these five um, points of failure. And I do... I do, um, at the risk of being slightly provocative, I do hold the executive to account um, for ensuring that we don't um, get caught up in these in these pitfalls. Um, let, let's 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 start with the first one: misaligned expectations. Too often that's the case. Too often we start off on this journey, and we do not have a common understanding and common alignment amongst all key stakeholders as we're trying to achieve interpretations and expectation between and the key business owners who will, who will be responsible for leveraging and, and utilizing the system. Um, we often have technology approach from the IT function um, and, a, and an expectation of very often immediate benefits post Goliath, not even having to go through this period of stabilization and improved user adoption uh, support before we get to before we get some indication that those benefits are starting to to, to occur um, so so if one looks at the different stakeholder groups even beyond the executive I think one first needs to ensure that the executive understand why we're doing this and in my view there's no good reason to do an ERP or digital transformation project without improving business performance without contributing to improve business performance whether that's bringing about new business capabilities or operational excellence or cost efficiencies, regulatory compliance, uh, real-time visibility of information, whatever the case may be, we do, we do need to ensure that as a, as a unit, that executive understands where we're going with this um, and, and how, we will, how we will measure success. So what constitutes success? What are the, what are the key criteria? And I, my colleague Dom spoke a little bit about that in the, in the previous session. But what are those key metrics that will inform success? And, and probably equally important, what are the key metrics that will inform failure? How do we know when we're on that low road? How do we know that when, when we're starting to take a dip um, on that low road? What are, how will we track those metrics? But when you have differing expectations, that kind of permeates throughout the organization because it's often the corridor talk that informs what the rest of the organization believes about this project and the consistency of the message that's been communicated as to what is that pot of gold? What are we trying to achieve over here? 
And, and of course, then you throw the SI into the mix, the systems integrator, the solution provider, um, perhaps some other third party, third party integration or vendors or other institutions that you, ecosystem partners you may do business with. And you have a very diverse group of stakeholders who want something different out of this project. Of course, there's a high dependency on the SI, depending on how one structures the delivery model. Um, and if that contract is set up all around go live, all around implementation with little or no accountability for driving out improved business performance, then you already have a, a very different expectation and agenda from a key, a critical party on the, in terms of the broader stakeholder group. So the, the, the executive really has to be the, the glue that holds those expectations together, that ensures that there's a, a well-defined and consistent message throughout as to what it is we're, we're after. And, and of course, that, that doesn't just, um, that's not just relevant at the start of the, of, of the ERP life cycle. When we, as an example, get into the design phase um, or understanding what the, what the current pain points are and how we will address that in the 2B design, or what new capabilities will be launched in order to drive improved revenue, we need to continue to reinforce those messages because with, with, with the best will in the world, the project is gonna default back to a technology project because that is frankly just the industry that we operate in and that is our SI contracts or scope. They, they, are not, they do not define the expected business benefits. They define the technologies to be deployed and everything and, and all reports um, and the narrative on the project is, is from a technology perspective rather than from an improved business benefit perspective. So let me just perhaps pause there after point one, uh, Carla, and perhaps uh, if there are, a few, I, I, I can't see the questions at this point, but perhaps there are a few questions yes. that we need to respond to. Yes. Um, so just a reminder, you can pop your questions in any um, chat that you are actually joining in via the comments. So we have a great question here um, from one of our, our LinkedIn viewers. That's how much time and effort do you invest in getting buy-in from senior management and engagement in an organization? And when do you maybe realize that that's not going to happen? Uh, so maybe not an executive piece, but understanding how you get that executive alignment and buy-in. Yes, I, I think it's a great question, especially the, the second part of the question as to at what point does one start to understand that that's not, not going to happen? And then, of course, what does one do, um, depending on which role you're in, in, in terms of the broader program structure? Um, but let me, let, me, let me go to the first question. First, I, I think if there needs to be some type of organizational readiness. Now, now whether you are an independent party doing such an assessment, call it a health check if you want, as to whether the organization as a whole is ready to, to proceed on this journey, or that's, you know, whether that's done by, by the executive themselves internally or the chair of the steering committee or the CEO, whatever the case may be, I do think it needs to be a formal assessment it perhaps doesn't have to be a, a, you know, a, a real deep dive and and take too much time and effort but at least the question has to be asked one has to test that with the relevant executive stakeholders as to whether we are aligned as to, as to what we're wanting to achieve and certainly from my perspective Carla I, I think uh, what we call an executive boot camp is I cannot think of any ERP project doing focusing on any aspect of it where 
I do, where we do not start with an executive boot camp. It is so important, irrespective of what the role one is doing as third stage on an engagement of this nature. It is absolutely fundamentally important that we just check where are things at, because if there are very divergent views or there are people who want this and people who don't want this sitting on the executive, um, you know, with organizational dynamics, this does, it, it, it does touch, it does disrupt that balance of the dynamic within the organization, um, commonly called company politics, but absolutely it does change that dynamic and it impacts different executives in different ways, some favorably, some less favorably. Sometimes it's a threat, sometimes, it's a, it's a great platform um, to, to move forward on. Um, so, so I think having some type of formal assessment up front, very important. Doesn't have to be a long in-depth in process, but at least some type of, uh, of, of, of work, facilitated workshop where we, where we test the strength of the alignment and understanding. And then I think, think secondly, you know, what does one do when you realize it's not there? Well, in my view, you know, if, if we cannot get to that point, one has to consider, do we pause the project? Mm -hmm. Do we pause the project and unpack what are the underlying issues that are inhibiting the desired level of, of alignment? Um, because the, the end result is that one is going to go alive and you're going to have ring views and there's nothing worse than being at it for two or three years, spending tens of and then getting to a point at the end uh, where the executive have differing views on whether success has been achieved or not and are interpreting it differently. Um, there's nothing worse than that. So I, I think one has to consider, do we pause the project at this time and get the relevant stakeholders in a room and try and thrash this out? Absolutely. That's, that's so important. Just that overall awareness around the reality of that conversation and, and building on that Clifford Mark on LinkedIn um, had a comment and a question. So he said, executives have so many demands on their time and attention, but so often ERP failures are due to lack of ex executive engagement. Is it feasible for them to delegate accountability if they don't realistically feel able or qualified to lead an ERP project? You know, so, so, so my response to, because one years this often, one years it from users when they need to test business process owners when they need to be involved in design and sign it off from executives when they need to sit in on steering committees and provide the necessary guidance and oversight um, one year is often that you know we, we're busy we don't have time for a project and my response is surely in this day and age of rapid disruption and digital transformation the one of the primary if not the primary role of an of the executive is to drive change is to lead change and one could even say to be a, a disrupting force within the, the executive uh, layer of the organization, surely it's not to maintain the status quo and do as tomorrow as we've done yesterday. I mean, that, that's a path to failure, surely. That's a path to losing market share. One has to be able to continuously innovate and drive change. And, and that's what digital transformation is. It's, it's, you know, we get caught up on the word digital, but it's about transformation. And as depicted on that high road and low road, um, you know, that transformation is disruptive and it needs the executive guidance, but it hopefully takes you to a better place where you are able to continue staying relevant in the market, able to launch new products and services, deploy them in new ways, connect with new customers in different ways, et cetera, et cetera. So to cut a long story short, I think it's a primary responsibility of an executive to guide and drive such change rather than to adopt a view that this is in addition to my day job. 
Great answers, definitely, Clifford. And keep those questions coming when it comes to this very complicated uh, subject and complex around executive alignment or failure points in a digital transformation. So let's keep going. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Clifford talking about the role of executives in digital transformation failures. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 90. Let's continue the conversation with Clifford Martin talking about the role of executives in digital transformation failures. We did have someone ask for a, a brief summary about what our uh, what is executive alignment as well. So maybe we'll, we'll layer that in um, when it comes to your additional content. Sure, absolutely. Let, let, let's, I think we're about halfway through the session. So let's move on to, to the second key point of failure, outsourcing accountability. And, and when, I say, when I talk about accountability, outsourcing accountability for the success of the project. And, and of course, that can never be. You know, one can never outsource accountability. And even if you could, it doesn't really make any sense because at the end of the day, the, organ, the client organization has to deal with the impact of failure. It doesn't matter. It's not particularly useful to have had a contract with the SI where you've held them 100% to account for the success of your program, however you define that. You are still going to sit with the, with the, the negative or adverse impact of a failed program. Um, and the fact that you may be able to invoke some penalties uh, is not particularly useful. So, so, so I think too often we chase this in contract negotiation with SIs with solution providers um, absolutely, one needs somewhat of a balance between, um, you know, the, the different roles and responsibilities of the of the SR, the solution provider, of all the different keys of the, of the IT function, of the business end users, the executive, all the different stakeholder groups. But accountability can only be with the executive. Um, and 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 what one does see, and and certainly what I what what I see in practice is that where we have a delivery model. By delivery model, I mean the organizational structure, roles, responsibilities, how we set that up in terms of who does what um, amongst those four or five key stakeholder groups that I mentioned. When one sees significant involvement and ownership from the, not even from, from, the, from the client project team, not even from the client IT department, but from the business end users, um, we have a much higher degree of success. We have, it, it, it then becomes a model where where one is co-creating the, the solution, it's, there's a common design, there's ample opportunity for the business to understand their current pain points and explore what are opportunities to, to remediate and address those. There's significant involvement from, 
from the end user community in terms of data cleansing and validation, in terms of testing, change management, training, um, and even to the extent of when one designs the post-Goliath support organization, that we have the super user concept as the first level of support sitting within the business. And then one, one that helps us ensure that we that we follow that high road and that that value of despair is not too painful and we don't linger too long um, in that particular area of the project life cycle. And, and the, the path to benefits is, is certainly um, a lot quicker. So how we, how we set up the accountability and who we hold accountable is fundamentally important. And one sees even with uh, large multinational enterprises, there's this expectation that, um, that accountability for the success. Uh, everyone wants to define that, and it's certainly never defined within an SI contract. And, and if it is, it's defined as as go live or delivering the last the last um, the last module, ERP module or solution or application system. Um, certainly never defined as positively impacting on business performance or launching new business capabilities. So one needs to ensure that that all key parties and particularly executive understand that they are accountable for the success and that there's a common and well-defined understanding of what constitutes success and the type of metrics we would use that will be used to inform that success and perhaps the last point i want to make on that carla is that you know it's so important as to we talk about there's a common kind of a narrative this whole area this whole area of, of roi and success and eric spoke at length about it but it's also important as to when the timing of assessing success, it doesn't help that we assess it three days, three weeks, even three months after go live. You know, we're still in that in that valley of despair. We're still in that stabilization period. So the timing of when of how we of when we assess when we assess the success of the program is extremely important. We must allow for ourselves to go through that stabilization period, but at the same time be able to track and um, and provide relevant feedback on on how quickly we're actually coming out of that so setting the program up up front with accountability firmly on the side of the executive and on the side of the business executive um, is extremely important clifford is always the best at describing things in a very simplistic way that's easy to digest and just really honestly fun to say so um, so when you talk about the Valley of Despair, Clifford, how do you know that you're in the Valley of Despair? Because a digital transformation can be really difficult. And I agree with this question. Um, you know, how, how do you know that you're there? And it's just it's not just kind of a, a tough situation. What are some key indicators? Yes. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's a very relevant question. And and I think to anyone who's been an, an ERP project manager, um, within a couple of days after after deployment or go live, you're going to know because you're not going to be able to walk out of your office down the passage with people telling you we're in the valley of despair. They may define and articulate it um, in more colourful language often, but um, you know. But but there's generally going to be a lot of noise in the system. There's going to be a lot of. You know, I think that's the first thing that's apparent. Um, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of anxiety. Uh, users cannot log on, the authorizations and roles perhaps not properly tested, and, and that's often an area of contention or area that's problematic immediately post-Galab. Um, certain business processes are not going to be able to be executed uh, on the system. The system may not even be available. 
so to tend to come to the fore at month end. So being able to conduct, um, and that's, and, and one picks that up quite quickly. Um, and, there, and, and again, I want to emphasize that it is so important that one can provide relevant information um, back to the key stakeholders as to what is going on on the ground. And we need to, and communication becomes so important, Kyla, because, and I'll never forget, I had a change manager who once said to me, no message is still a message. And when you're not communicating in that post alive, and it's merely the, the corridor speak that is, that is becoming the, the, the primary voice or primary um, assessment of the success or otherwise of the program, you're in trouble. So one has to be able to provide clear analytics and statistics on what are the numbers of calls coming in analyze those, those, those calls or, or help test tickets. You know, is it training issues? Is it configuration is, issues? Is it authorization issues? And how quickly are they being resolved so that you have some control over that noise and, and emotion that's taking place in the corridors? So perhaps a, a bit of a long-winded answer, but it's, a, it's, a, it's such an important area because from there on, one starts to get a grip on, on, on being able to assess and articulate the, the success or failure of the of the program. It's no use that it's no use trying to start to do that do that. You're immediately on the back foot if you allow that situation to linger for too long and you're not able to get some control over the messaging and the analytics and statistics that are coming out when you're in that value of despair. It's such a, a great answer. And I, I love how you kind of layered in the communication aspect of that in the importance of kind of getting control of that narrative. Um, another question on on that Valley of Despair concept, um, Ghassan on LinkedIn, who's actually on our CIO panel later this afternoon, um, talked about the Valley of Despair can be too deep to get out of. How do you address that if that is a failure point? Is that when you go to a triage or restoration project or what does that look like? Yes, that, that, indeed. I mean, I, I, I think that... that it, a lot would have needed to have gone wrong in the preceding phases. I mean, you know, specifically in um, in, the, in the testing, in the in the configuration build, uh, the data migration. So, and 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 of course, what this really talks to it comes back to to the previous presentation, Kyla, around being able to assess the readiness to go live. And and let me then get into that and into that point three, also in the interest of time. Um, because I think it talks to that premature declaration of victory. That's what leads us into the situation where uh, it's sometimes very difficult to come out of that. But I've, and 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 one needs to understand that you you know as, whether you are indeed coming out of it or not, because that's where it becomes important to have the analytics to be able to track that the number of calls are starting to reduce, the configuration or data or any other issues are starting to be addressed. We've had refresher training. Uh, we're starting to stabilize the business involvement. The user adoption is improving. Um, and, and one needs to get some key allies on your side at that point in time and, and start to champion it and remind everybody about what, what's the part of goal that we're trying to chase over here in terms of the benefits. Um, and the fact that this is, is kind of just one um, pitfall or speed bump in the road to those benefits uh, and keep the focus on that. So, 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 so I think the and being being confident that you are able to deploy the solution 
is so important. And I must uh, I must take a little bit of a shot at our at our colleagues on the in the systems integrator space on this one because too often we have projects and statements of work and SI contracts that are designed around the achievement of specific milestone, time-driven milestones. So in other words, the project plan is that we're going live on the 1st of January and come hell high water, we're going live on the 1st of January because the final invoice payment, the billing schedule aligns to that, is linked to that, to that particular date. And certainly, uh, you know, I'm a great advocate of ensuring that there are quality-driven metrics. There may be time-driven metrics, but they also need to, they need to be augmented with quality-driven metrics. So we will we will be able to go live if we have tested 95% of our critical business processes at least twice. If we have no or less than 0.5% high severity errors and defects in the solution. If we have a at least 98% of all our master and transactional data fully converted, you know one has to set those types of criteria in in have to have them in place and have them in place. It's extremely difficult for uh, to bring that in halfway, you know, halfway down on, on on the journey. It's kind of like trying to fix the Boeing in in flight, um, and you're not going to necessarily get a very good um, reception from your SR when you suddenly want to change the contract and and bring about some additional parameters or constraints from their perspective, some additional to to meet their target dates and um, Collect there and collect those final invoices. So I do think that our ability to make an informed decision to, um, whether we are ready to go live. And perhaps the last point I'll make on this, just a, a little bit of a, a practical story, what one often sees, and I, I sit on a number of, of digital transformation steering committees, and you know you're in trouble when you walk into the steering committee, that the final steering committee, uh, that is to make the decision on whether one's ready to go live or not. And one or two scenarios plays out. The SI walks in and we have the whole executive sitting there. The SI walks in and says, we're ready to go live. And everybody looks at their shoes and it gets a little bit awkward. And uh, and within five minutes, the decision by default, the decision because no one has questioned that the decision's made and you go live and that normally doesn't end well. The other end of the spectrum is um, one has the final steering committee to make the decision to go live, and it's a whole day debate and discussion discussion amongst the executive and the other key stakeholders as to our readiness to go live. And that that, that that's generally because we we don't have uh, a good understanding of what the indicators and metrics are, and there's not sufficient evidence presented to support um, an, a, a conclusion as to whether we've achieved those metrics or not. So neither of those scenarios are. Are, are healthy, but one does encounter that quite often. And therefore, again, come back to the point that it's so important that we set those metrics up front, that we understand who needs to achieve them, and that it's an informed decision with um, adequate evidence as to, as to the readiness to go live. Let me pause there as well and just uh, see if there are any follow-up questions or comments, uh, Carla. Yes, we've got some um, great questions here. So from, this is a, a little bit, um, outside of this specific key point, but it's one of your expertise, Clifford. So I wanted to just jump in and ask you. Um, so Mark on LinkedIn asks, how do you think that SIs are at least motivated by maintaining their reputations? So that's more powerful in holding them accountable in the contract terms and deliverables. 
So uh, I know you're going to go into this a lot and your quality assurance Q&A later this afternoon, but I thought I might kind of just put this out there so that you can um, have a, a chance to address that. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll try and address it, you know, very succinctly. Um, so, so absolutely, one, one, and, and many clients do, you know, they, they do rely on the, on the reputation or the fact that uh, there could be some reputational damage for the SI if things don't go well. But that is assuming that you are able to demonstrate that they were at fault. And certainly on a standard SI agreement, you're going to struggle. They do cover themselves. So, um, so I mean, there are many projects that don't go well. Um, and you, and, 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 you know, as, as I know that Eric would, would uh, be able to attest to, and seems spending a lot of time in, 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 in legal uh, suits on this topic, um, that it, it's very difficult to, to prove that because certainly the, the contract's not going to be structured uh, in a manner that allows you to easily, um, let, let me give you one example. Um, a general clause in an SI contract is that after integration testing, we have user acceptance testing, and that is a handover point. And you then as the client take on accountability and responsibility for the success of the deployment or for the completeness of, of the solution that has been handed over to you by the SI for user acceptance testing. Um, and your right of recourse is, is significantly limited post that point. Now that will be in the fine print in the contract. Many clients would not understand that and would not organize themselves adequately to ensure a comprehensive and robust user acceptance testing or that they, 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 that they put down certain predefined, a threshold or predefined metrics upon which and only upon which they will take uh, control of the solution uh, you know, upon the achievement of those metrics by the SR. So, so I think the, the first thing is, you know, that's, all, that's all well and fine. Um, one can rely on the reputation, but you have to then demonstrate and prove that, that, it, that the SR was at fault. You're going to struggle to do that on a standard SR contract. And I think secondly, one most of us discount the importance of collecting the final invoice and ensuring that the, that, you know, that the, the engagement is profitable because that's, that's going to be the trade-off often. You know, do, we, do we go live and ensure that we don't incur any additional expenses from an SI perspective? And ensure that we collect the revenue that was forecasted for this engagement, um, and is and do we do that at the risk of um, the solution not quite being ready, but us not as an SR not being willing to in, in incur any additional cost to delay the project. So it's often that those type of trade-offs that you're asking senior partners and directors to make on the side of the SI, and sad to say, often it's 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 the money that 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 wins that 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 takes uh, takes preference. I'm afraid. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Clifford talking about the role of executives in digital transformation failures. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 90. Let's continue the conversation with Clifford Martin talking about the role of executives in digital transformation failures. Um, David has a really good question on LinkedIn, but I'm going to save it because it has to do with um, the user adoption um, process. So why don't you go into that point, um, Clifford, and then we'll go ahead and address that in just a second. Sure. I think I only have a few. I think I'm over already, am I not, uh, Carla? That's okay. Um, you know, we have a, about a 15-minute buffer, so we definitely want to make sure we get to everyone's questions, and then um, we'll go into software selection in, in just a few minutes. Fantastic. Let me, let me try and get through those last two points. So, so the... The, the fourth point is really around that, that very issue of, of low levels of business adoption. And uh, perhaps just a, a, a little um, story that might demonstrate this in terms of my experience. Um, over the years, I've had a number of CIOs um, who often do head up these projects or to whom these projects often do report, come to me and say, um, you know, we've been live for two, three, five, six months, whatever the case may be, and my CEO keeps asking me where the benefits are and whether this project's been successful um, and you know what, what's actually been achieved out of the project, what benefits have been achieved. And my reason is, why is he asking you, yeah? you as, this, as, the, as the head of IE? Why is he not asking the business executives, you know, the head of finance, supply chain, procurement, marketing, etc.? Um, because that's where the accountability should sit. And too often, a point you don't have that when you have that misexpectations up front, one gets into this finger pointing, and we do need to be able to measure the level of user adoption. Um, now, in the worst cases, if I back on some of my experiences, in the worst cases. We spend all that time and effort implementing months off to go live ERP. People have defaulted to Excel and or 15, 20, 30% of users have not even logged on yet. So one has to then ask the question that how are you doing your job if you manage to circumvent the ERP system, um, you know, through which maybe 80, 90% of your business transactions completed. You know, how's what how, how do you actually perform? your role than if you, if you had gone after X number of weeks. So I think it's really important if, if I'm the program manager of IT, one wants to ensure that only sits in the right area, find and, and, and that one is able to monitor the level to which the, the new solution is being utilized and leveraged in pursuit of those business benefits. And if you if, if you're not able to do that, I'm afraid, um, you know, as the as the head of IT or manager, uh, you're going to draw a lot of attention. The, it, it, it's sometimes convenient for business to to keep this as an IT project. Uh, be quite forceful in each. So let me let me um, move on to the next point, and we'll see if we still have time for one or two quick questions. So unholistic benefits. Um, I think what in, in practice what is. We kind of go through that of despair. Uh, we come out of it, 
or the projects the projects overrun it's over cost over time over budget um and the organization is just happy to go live and just happy to at least see some signs of of light as we exit this this um this valley of despair um that we 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 always run success um throughout the course of the of this journey and the defaults once again to a technology project so being able to ensure that aspirations around those benefits and indeed they build the capabilities within the organization to be able to define monitor track and articulate and harvest those benefits is, is extremely important it is a competency um that we we need to establish that is often within an, um, and it is a to ensure it is there and that continue to hold the right people accountable because the bottom line is the it department processes they don't control the uh, competency of, of the individual or business end users uh, certainly they they uh, manage the underlying infrastructure and they provide technical support but 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 by far um, the levers for success sit on the business side and the ability of, of an IT department um, or project management team to positively influence those levers are limited in comparison to the business owners. Therefore, I think it's so important that um, that, that accountability sits within your executive and that they are the ones who are asked the question as to why the benefits have not been achieved. Um, I'll I'll stop there, Carla. Uh, that's the end of my talk. If there, if we do have time for one or two last questions, very happy to take those. Absolutely. Um, well, as I mentioned, David had a great question on LinkedIn that I definitely want to get to um, a comment and question. Um, he said, "In my experience, in general, is that it is very hard to get commitments and resources from the operating part of the organization. The top level management can be very supportive." but lower down, you get all kinds of excuses. What is the most important tool in order to get focus and resources from these operatives? Sure. Um, in, in short, I think it comes down to governance and it comes down to what, you know, having some type of decision-making process in place, uh, some type of racy model if you want, and that needs to be defined and agreed and understood up front, not just defined on paper, but it actually needs to be very clearly communicated and accepted by by the operations, as as you as put it, operating side of the business. And 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 really what I'm saying over here, who is required to make decisions on what, based on what criteria? Because if as a as an operating business or as what I call the business community, you are saying to me as as the project team. I'm happy for you to make a decision as to whether the design, the to-be design, reflects our ambition and aspirations going forward, or I'm happy for you as the project team to make the final decision about whether the solution has been configured and built in accordance with the design, or I'm happy for you to make the decision business community is ready, the solution is ready to be deployed within the business community, and there have been competency levels at the required, um, at the required level. Um, then, then fine, but let's get that up front and let's understand who is going to make what decisions and why they need, because only the business can make the decision about whether the solution con, uh, complies or, or conforms with the design as they've articulated it to the project team. So I think one has to get that 
sorted right up front and ensure that those decisions are then made at the critical intervals in the project and 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 that we t we remove any possibility or opportunity for certain stakeholder groups to say we were not involved or we didn't understand or it wasn't our decision it was your decision i think one has to be quite um aggressive and and firm on that front and how would you do that, Clifford, if you're in a, a larger, maybe global, very complex organization? What are some tactics that you can do to kind of scale that governance to ensure that it hits all pieces of the business? Yes, once again, Carla, I think, you know, one has to be unfortunately quite detailed and specific in, those, in, in, in these areas to the extent of we understand, to, you know, in terms of how we structure it, to the extent that we understand what is the functional footprint or scope that this that this new solution is going to touch, with, in terms of which part of the business is going to touch, who are the heads of department or the what we typically call the business process owners, who are you know who are the individuals that are accountable for these particular areas, an organisational impact assessment, which I've no doubt my my colleague Donia will touch on later on, um, you know, in terms of how are things changing and ensuring that along each step of the way, Dom spoke about a stage gate process, each step of the way we design, and, and we're very deliberate and formal about this, we design that decision-making process so that there's ample opportunity for these, not, well, it's not just opportunity, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a requirement that we have the right people making these decisions of doing an assessment and making decisions as to whether the project can proceed, whether those deliverables have been and goals have been met. And the business community's role is to be very well defined and there needs to be a formal approval and sign off of those deliverables before we proceed to the next stage. So we don't come out of design and proceed to build, the build phase. And these are of course very structured phases uh, with very defined deliverables um, following a very uh, you know, industry accepted implementation methodology um, activate in the case of SAPs is the relevant methodology. It's a very structured process and we do not proceed to the next phase of the project until those deliverables have been formally signed off by the right individuals. So one has to be extremely deliberate and detailed about this and be willing to say that um, we're not happy to proceed because we do not have acceptance by the relevant business stakeholders that this is the design that they're wanting us to build. It's really that simple. Absolutely. Um, such great insight. Now, I'll um, end with one final question, if that works with you, um, Clifford. And again, if you're just tuning in, you can watch all of the replays here. But uh, we have Jordan on LinkedIn that said, a major part of a digital transformation can be characterized as enabling companies to derive business value from the integration of technology capabilities. Do you think that optimizing the process of gener generating qualitative information from quantitative data is key to optimizing business process, um, optimizing business processes, excuse me, leading to a successful digital business management strategy? Um, so overall talking about um, the optimization of data and processes in a digital transformation. Fundamentally important, um, and uh, Kyla, because and, and it talks to why are we doing this? You know, if we are merely doing this as a tech, doing undertaking a digital transformation as an, as a, a technology refresh, and in that case, I wouldn't call it a digital transformation because you're not transforming anything. Um, but if that is the case, you know, then 
then perhaps then we need to acknowledge and recognize that up front that we're not going to be doing very much business process re-engineering. So it aligns, so our approach to business processes needs to be informed by, by the reasons for, for, under, for undertaking the, the, um, the project. And on the other hand, and, and I would suggest that that's never a good reason. There's never a good reason to take, in this case, I'm talking about ERP, to undertake an ERP result or an performance, however we find that. So there are missed opportunities if technology refresh, there should there, there should always be some type of business process re-engineering. Absolutely, one needs to be able to to track that. And, and these days, you know, all the major, certainly the tier one ERP solutions, have the tool to be able to do business process modeling, business process monitoring, tracking, and driving and monitor and measure and drive improvement. So there's no there's no real excuse for not um, having that as part of your objective. And Things like an organizational impact assessment will help you understand where the changes are in terms of new roles, new, new improved processes, uh, the extent to which current pain points are addressed, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's number one, it's extremely important that we are able to, to, to demonstrate that improvement, define it and track it, and certainly all the tools are there to be able to do that. The last point I'd make on that, we sometimes get into trouble when we when we in, when we sign a, an SI contract, which has a very short blueprinting phase or is merely a template rollout, which does not allow sufficient time and effort to be able to unpack current pain points and design uh, solutions to address them. And it's uh, kind of, you know, very much an, an adopt rather than adapt process, i.e. adopt our template rather than adapt your, your business processes in pursuit of better practice. All right, good stuff. I hope you enjoyed that, that clip with Clifford giving his presentation or his keynote presentation about the role of executives in, in digital transformation failures. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 90. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler, and we just had Clifford Martin on the show talking about the role of executives, digital transformation failures. What were some of your takeaways, Kyler? Yeah, well, I think this is a really important conversation because so many times executives, I feel like in digital transformation, don't often take a role in having responsibility for the failure when it comes to, or, and, you know, the stoppage. So a failure can mean a, a lot of different things. It can mean that the project is stalled. It can mean that the project 
actually went through implementation but isn't maximizing the business value or there's low user adoption, there's many levels to failure. But having that executive alignment, I feel like is absolutely key to ensuring that your technology or digital transformation is really reaching the full potential. I think it really lies with that executive team to make sure that happens. Would you agree, Eric, or would you have a different opinion? No, I totally agree. I mean, it, it, you don't want to put all the blame on the executives, but at the end of the day, the executives are the ones that need to pivot or make changes when changes need to be made. And a lot of times we see, especially in our expert witness practice and or our project recovery practice, where we go in and help clean up failed projects, uh, you find that the executives want to point, you know, assign the blame to the system integrator, to the software vendor, to the project team. And at the end of the day, yeah, I'm sure, you know, most parties involved have something to do with the failure. So it's not, you know, it's hard to assign all the blame to one party, but um, it's really the executives are the only ones that can make the major decisions that need to be made to get it back on track. It's not the software vendor, the system integrator, or even your project team. It has to be the executives that assign more resources or cut back scope if they need to, or, you know, sometimes God forbid, fire the system integrator if they're, if they're charging you too much and delivering too little value, or if the resources aren't good, find a new one or, you know, do what you need to do. You know, the only ones that can make those, those big decisions are the executives. So I, I think you're right in, in many cases. Yeah, absolutely. So if you are an executive, because sometimes it can be difficult and I'm always hard on executives, right? I feel as though, you know, they should be held to this deity full caliber responsibility, but sometimes they don't often have that visibility into the project because of just the dynamics or culture of the organization. So if you are an executive and you kind of have a spidey sense, if you will, that something is going wrong with your digital transformation, what are some main red flags that you should really look out for that would really showcase that your instincts might be right on? Well, first and foremost, if your system integrator is telling you that everything's fine and all the status reports are showing all green, that means you're, there's something you're missing and you're not, someone's not telling you something because, you know, the, the system integrators are, they suffer from a sort of fox guarding the hen house problem, which is they're protecting their own revenue stream, their own, you know, the perception of them internally, uh, their ability to continue that revenue stream. And so if they start pointing out their own deficiencies in the areas of the project that aren't going well, that threatens or could jeopardize those revenue streams or that self-interest. So, so if you're seeing a bunch of green in your status reports, it's okay, not to say you want things to be red or yellow, but there just has to be something that's red or yellow really at any point in a project. Even when you're first starting out, there should be pretty clear risks that have been identified, risk mitigation plan, all that good stuff. So I'd say that's one warning sign. Another warning sign would be if you don't have an independent third-party view of what is or isn't going well, then you're not, you know, you're just going to get more of that biased view of the, of the implementation. Um, the other thing that's real common too, is, you know, there's a difference between a system integrator delivering technology per their scope and per their contract. They could do a great job, even if they do a great job of delivering the technology to the contract, that doesn't necessarily mean that the software is going to work well for the organization. And so bridging that gap between what the system integrator or the software vendor needs to deliver versus what you need to deliver as a business leader bridging that gap is really important. And that's where a lot of organizations struggle. And that's why they hire companies like third stage to come in and help them sort of translate what's being done on the software technology side to a a usable business solution um, that actually drives an ROI. Sure, sure. And that, you know, kind of drives home that point that Clifford made in his keynote, that executive bootcamp is really a key 
first step or, you know, in that phase zero planning is really absolutely key to ensuring that you not only have alignment, but understand those red flags and are, are ready to lead the project most effectively. So I think that was a great recommendation from, from him. And if you do have questions about that executive boot camp, please feel free to reach out to him directly um, at clifford.martin at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn um, with a bunch of his thought leadership and both him and um, Ridwan, who is also a, a part of that uh, EMEA team, have been former CIOs, as you saw on our CIO panel, and not a shameless plug for the event at all. But if you go watch the event, we've seen kind of an emergence of CIO evolution articles in in major publications like Forbes. And, you know, obviously I'm convinced that they got that from us and all of the yeah, content of we've been talking about of the modern CIO. So if you haven't seen the event, uh, you can find the full event on our website, thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership and our events. You can find it there. You can also find our full stratospheres on our YouTube page, as well as 2022 or excuse me stratosphere2022.com as well yeah great and i i think it's okay to have a shameless plug here for people to go watch the stratosphere that's what i do yeah you know <laughs> at least i a, at least i admit it right <laughs> right right and it's a free event so there's we're not making money off that uh, obviously but we hope people find value out of it and we'll go go check it out so there's yeah, there's a lot of great content there uh, from that session in, in addition to the one that we just played you with with clifford so be sure to check that out again at stratosphere2022.com uh, all right. Well, great. Well, thanks for another great episode, uh, Kyler. And thank you to uh, Fabian and Clifford for uh, providing the content for this episode, even though they didn't know they were providing content for this particular episode, since there are replays of some past clips. But uh, we thank them anyway. And uh, thank everyone for listening here. Be sure to subscribe to the channel and or the podcast if you're listening on the audio format. And uh, be sure to drop us a review, too. We'd love to hear, hear your feedback. So uh, please drop a review wherever you're listening or watching. So we will look forward to seeing you next week uh, for another episode of Transformation Ground Control. In the meantime, we hope you all have a great week and we'll see you next time. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. That was an awkward transition, but whatever. <laughs> we're we're going to roll with it. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. <laughs>